The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, and welcome to episode 16 of Green Sports Pod. We are really excited to have Dr. Catherine Hayhoe on the pod today. She is the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, a climate scientist and professor at Texas Tech University, was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people on the planet in 2014, and is an eco-athlete's supporter. And for my money, Catherine is the best climate communicator I've ever heard. She is also the author of Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World, which comes out tomorrow, Tuesday, September 21st. We will get into how sports and the athletes who play them can play their part in saving us on climate in a bit. But first, Catherine, thank you for joining us today on Green Sports Pod. Thank you so much for having me, Lou. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. I always come off of our conversation so much more enthused about the possibilities than when I started. So this is also great for me as well. So let's talk about Saving Us. Why did you write it and for whom? I decided to write a book because I was getting the same two questions from people no matter where I went. And I finally decided if everybody wants to know the answers to these two questions, maybe I should just write a book about it. What are those two questions? Well, the first question is, what gives you hope? People figure since I'm a climate scientist and I look at this bad news every single day, if I can somehow remain hopeful about the future, there's got to be something that motivates me to do so. And the answer to that is yes, but it isn't the science. And unfortunately, it's not the politics either. But hope comes not from the guaranteed certainty of a positive outcome, but the chance of a better future, even if we are in a very dark place today, which we are. So the book unpacks that sort of narrow line between optimism and despair and where true hope can take us into the future. And then the second question follows very naturally off of that, which is people want to know, And I get this question from everybody, everywhere. I could be talking to senior citizens in California. I could be talking to scientists in New York. I could be talking to church folks in Ireland. No matter where I am and who I'm talking to, people want to know, how do I talk to people about this? Because it's such an important issue. It's such an overwhelming issue. It's an issue that many of us are very concerned about. But we feel paralyzed. We don't know how to talk about it without just being all doom and gloom and feeling like we just want to go back to our room and pull our blanket up over our head. And often we're worried that we might get in an argument with somebody we know, somebody we love, a colleague, a friend, a neighbor. We're desperate to talk about it, but we don't know how. And so this book is about how, if we can figure out how to talk about climate change, if we can figure out how to fix climate change, if we can figure out how to come together on this issue, which is currently the number one most politically contentious issue in the entire United States, what else 
might we be able to fix along the way? And that would be yet another book or two. But let's stay on this because the contentiousness about this issue, you live it in the Lubbock, Texas area where Texas Tech University is and where you teach. I think from the book, it's either the the number one or two most politically conservative congressional district in the country. You know, it's a seat of evangelicals who tend to have skepticism, to say the least, about this issue. And in fact, you're married to an evangelical preacher and are a devout Christian yourself. How have you been able to kind of talk the talk in your backyard? Mm -hmm. Well, that's where I learned how to do it, Lou. If we had never moved to Texas, which we actually did because the university wanted to hire my husband, who is also a linguist as well as being a pastor, if I had never moved to Texas, I would probably still be doing my science, talking to decision makers about how we can prepare for and build resilience to the impacts of a changing climate, and talking to people who make decisions about water and energy and health and food, about how we can reduce our carbon emissions, because that's what I was already doing as a scientist. But if I hadn't moved to Texas, I probably wouldn't be doing any of the rest of it, which is talking about why climate change matters to all of us, going out and talking to rotary clubs and church groups and colleges and business organizations. The whole reason I've recognized the importance of and the possibilities of talking about climate change is because I ended up embedded in this community, which is very politically conservative, where many people would say that climate change isn't real or if it's real, it isn't humans. But Texas is, after Alaska, arguably the most vulnerable state in the United States to climate impacts. Why? Because we get every type of crazy weather event almost anyways. We get record-breaking ice storms and snowstorms and blizzards. We get dust storms and droughts and haboobs. We get hurricanes, tornadoes, hail, severe weather, heavy rainfall events, killer heat waves, wildfires even. Texas gets it all. And climate change is loading the dice against us, making many of these events much more severe, more damaging, and even more dangerous. And then there's one more thing, too. So public opinion makes Texas pretty unique. So too does their vulnerability to impacts, but they also have some of the greatest potential to be part of the solution. Texas already has more than 22% of its electricity coming from clean energy. If you wanted to power the whole U.S. with solar energy using current day technology, now you wouldn't really want to do this from just one place. That just doesn't make sense logistically. But just as an example, We get so much sun here and we have so much flat land that if you covered an area just over 100 by 100 miles, which would fit in West Texas between Lubbock and the city of Amarillo, if you covered that area in solar panels, it could supply the entire United States with electricity. That's how much potential Texas has for clean energy. So being in Texas is really the perfect place to look at what people think about climate change, how they're vulnerable to it, and what the real solutions look like. And the interesting thing was, I had only been here for a couple of months, maybe two months, maybe three months, before I got my first invitation to speak to a woman's group, it was, I remember well, about climate change. And this was the first time I'd ever been asked to speak to a group that wasn't preaching to the choir, who wasn't already worried about climate change and just wanted an update. This was the very first time. And that's how I learned 
that people have a lot of questions that they'd like the answer to. And they're looking for someone to answer those questions in a respectful manner, not saying, oh, I can't believe you think that, but saying, yeah, that's a good question. Let's talk about it. And how did those conversations go? Because I'm imagining that whether it's the women's groups or the rotary clubs that you might talk to, or even your college students, there is a lot of skepticism. In fact, I don't have to imagine it. I, in Saving Us, on page 55, I'm going to read a passage. At a workshop on how climate change affects agriculture in Texas, one farmer came up to me afterward shaking his head. Everything you said makes sense, he said, and I'd like to agree with you. But if I agree with you, I have to agree with Al Gore. And I could never do that. So, <laughs> yes. So, how do you deal with that? Well, that is verbatim a quote from a conversation that I had. And there's many such conversations throughout the book. And so, I really appreciate his honesty because so many people bring up sciencey sounding objections like, oh, it's just a natural cycle or climate's changed before. And people also often bring up religiously sounding objections like, oh, if God is in control, then none of this, you know, none of this could happen. But what's really behind it 99.9% .9 of the time is solution aversion. We don't think that we can fix it. And so often we come up with palatable sounding excuses to say, oh, it can't be real because we don't want to admit that it might be real, but we don't want to fix it. So I actually really admire that man's self-awareness because he had put it all together and he was totally honest about it. He said, it makes sense, but I would have to give up part of my identity. I would have to agree with someone who I fundamentally feel like I can't because it's part of who I am to disagree with this person, sadly. It's sad when your identity is based on who you disagree with rather than who you agree with. But that's the world we live in. So with people like that, often what happens is engaging them, not trying to change who they are, but finding out who they already are, what they already care about. Values like stewardship or conservation or caring for the land or the soil or making sure that he has a healthy farm and land to pass on to his children. 99% of the time, honestly, I found that people already have the values they need to care, but we just have to figure out what those are and then connect them to climate change. So it could be that that man, and I didn't follow up with him specifically, but I've talked to many similar farmers after him, often they're entirely on board with learning more about no-till agriculture and water conservation and drought-resistant crops and sensible adaptation plans. Farmers in the U.S. are actually starting to get excited by the possibility of carbon markets, the idea that we have too much carbon in the air, but we could put some of it back into the soil and back into vegetation where we want it, where it's good for us. And that would actually help with climate change. And, you know, if we had a price on carbon, then I could see a future where farmers could potentially even get paid for putting carbon back in the soil. So those types of action-based positive beneficial solutions often bring people on board to the point where finally they realize, hey, this is my identity. And well, too bad if Al Gore agrees with me, but this is what I know is true. <laughs> right. And I have given climate talks and I've come across this objection as well. And what I say is Al Gore is not a four-letter word. I mean, yes, his last name has four letters, but not everything he does when he wakes up from when he, when he goes to sleep is wrong. Maybe you think 99% of it is, but this 1% is right. Similarly, my friends on the left 
thought that everything George W. Bush did was wrong. Bush is a four-letter word, but he really is he might have done 99% of the things wrong, but you know, whether it was funding, you know, AIDS prevention in Africa or whatever issue you want to say, no one is wrong all the time. And Gore is right on this. And I use a little bit of humor to try and get at it because it's hard because solution aversion, and you get into this in the book, there's aversion to the actual solution, but then there's the aversion to whom it's coming from. Mm -hmm. And how do you over... How do you overcome that? Well, that is the topic of a study that I just participated in with researchers at Yale University called New Climate Voices. So what they did, and this was the brainchild of David Fenton, who's been in the climate and environmental communications arena for a very long time. And if you have not interviewed him on the blog, I would definitely recommend David as a fantastic interviewee. He thought, okay, what if we created a set of videos highlighting voices of people who conservatives would identify with and respect? So what if we got Bob Inglis, two-time Republican congressman from South Carolina? What if we got Jerry Taylor, libertarian, head of a conservative think tank? What if we got General Ron Keyes, a retired Air Force general? And what if we got a climate scientist who's a Christian, that would be me, to make really short little videos talking about why they care about climate change from the perspective of conservative values, libertarian values, Christian values, and national security and military values. So we made these short little videos and they did a real world experiment with them. They shared these videos on social media in two purple districts that had, you know, Republicans and Democrats in them. I think they were in Georgia and Missouri, if I recall correctly. And they shared these videos on social media where people would see them. And they looked at how Republicans' opinions about climate change in those districts changed after those people in those districts had been exposed to this information on social media. And they measured a statistically significant increase in Republicans' level of awareness and concern about climate change. And they assume, well, The only thing that happened was they were exposed to these videos. And so they saw an army general, they saw a Republican politician, they saw libertarian, and they saw a Christian talking about it. It really can make a difference. Like you just said, Lou, when we bring in people who other people can identify with, whether it's a fellow parent, whether it's someone who also hunts or fishes, whether it's someone who they identify with on a faith basis or political basis, that helps us see that it's not only about Al Gore or only about Greenpeace or only about environmentalists or tree huggers, I am truly convinced, and this is what I talk about in my book, that every single person in this on this planet already has every reason they need to care about climate change. And if they don't think they do, it is not because we have to change their values or, quote, fix their values, as if you can ever do that in anybody over the age of, what, like 12? It's That's because, pushing it right there. Yeah, it is. It is. Maybe let's, let's downgrade that to eight, maybe. <laughs> yes. Now you're in range. Right. So it's not, thankfully, we don't have to change people's values. We just have to get to know them, figure out what their values are, and then connect the dots to how climate change affects what they already care about. So in the book, I have, as you know, I have dozens of examples about people who are athletes, or if you enjoy a beach vacation, or if you're a big foodie, you like beer and wine, you're a parent, you're a person of faith, you're not a person of faith, depending on where you live. I don't know, like Lou, what has been a great point of connection for you? And I think I know what I'm going to, what you're going to say. What? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's a couple of things. One is, I, I believe that 
I don't have kids personally. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is the biggest challenge that humanity faces. It's the biggest opportunity humanity faces. And I feel like I want to do what I can do in my work life to maximize the opportunity and get us off the carbon train wreck we're headed for. And having been a sports nut since I can basically remember and understanding the power of sports and the power of athletes to make a difference, I say, this is where I should be. This is where I should be. Exactly. And where you are is different than where I am, is different where you are listening to this podcast. Every single one of us is different. And that is a strength because it means that we have some a unique perspective, a unique passion, and a unique priority, unique experiences to bring to the table. Because as I conclude in the book, to care about climate change, we only have to be one thing, and that's a human living on this planet. And we're all that. I used that quote before the book came out because I've heard you say that before I knew there was a book. So, and I quote you on that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> now I'm going back to a TED talk that you gave. And if to my listeners out there, if you haven't heard Catherine's TED talk, go online, do it, inspirational, full stop. In it, you say something to the effect of the most powerful thing we can do as individuals, because people ask me all the time what they can do and expecting to hear recycling or composting. But what you say is talk about it and talk about that. That is exactly right. That is the first most important thing that we can do, specifically using our voices to advocate for change within our sphere of influence. People often think, well, I'm just one person. What difference can I make? I'm not a president or a CEO or a prime minister. I'm not some famous influencer with thousands of Instagram followers. You know, so what am I supposed to do? Well, every single one of us is embedded within a network. We might be embedded within a network of friends or family, colleagues. We might be part of an organization, a place of work, a place of worship, a neighborhood, a club. We are all part of and connected to people. And when you look back in the past and you think, how did the world change before? How did we manage to overcome massive slavery? How did women get the right to vote? How did we address civil rights? It did not begin, change did not begin when, you know, the king or queen of England said there must not be any more slavery. Or, you know, when Abraham Lincoln, he was not the first person to say we need to abolish slavery in the U.S. And, you know, the president was not the first person to say we need to address civil rights. It was when individual people, seemingly insignificant people, said, decided this is not the way the world should be. And they decided to talk about it with people around them. And then those people were like, yeah, that's right. The world could and should and must change. And they started to talk with other people too. And then people started to come together and say, you know, we really need change. Here's what it could look like. Here's what I'm going to do myself. Here's what we can do in our community. But here's the larger change we need at the larger scale. That is how social change happens, by changing what scientists call our social norms, which is our idea of what is acceptable, of how's the way the world should be and the way that we should interact and the things that we should do and the things we should expect of others. Our social norms have changed radically over the last 200 years, and today it's time for them to change again. That's how we fix climate change. And how does that begin? The very first domino 
you know how when you're a kid, you used to line up all those dominoes and you knock over the first one, they all kind of go over. Well, the first domino is opening our mouths and talking about not the science, talking about why it matters to us, why it might matter to the person we're talking to, and what we can all do working together to help fix it. And how, guess what? There's already millions of other people helping to fix it. And let me tell you some really awesome stories about what they're doing so we understand we are not alone. This boulder is already rolling down the hill. It's already got millions of hands on it. We just need more hands to get it going faster. And that is a very different perspective than the perspective most people have on climate change, which is that it is a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of a very steep hill with only a few hands on it trying to push it up and it will never get to the top. And so we think, what's the point of adding our hand? It cannot make a difference. But if we realize it's already at the top of the hill, it's already rolling downhill in the right direction. It already has millions of hands on it. It just needs some more. That's how we realize that, yeah, you know what? We can make a difference. And the first thing I can do is I can start talking to people about this because we're not mind readers, right? I mean, we don't know what other people are thinking. We have to talk about it for people to know that climate change is real, that the impacts are here and now, that they're affecting things that you and I care about personally in the places where we live, and there absolutely are solutions. And those solutions are not like, you know, Jetsons style in the future. Those solutions are here and now, and the solutions are being deployed. We just need, to your point, more hands to push more solutions faster and at scale. And scale is where sports comes in because sports, regardless of what you think about it, two to three billion people out of seven and a half billion care about it in some way, shape or form. And sports has been where social change has accelerated. Over decades, Muhammad Ali and the Vietnam War, various civil rights, you know, John Carlos, Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King, women's rights, Billie Jean King, LGBTQ rights, issues of war and peace. Now we have Megan Rapino for equal pay for women. I could go on and on, but we don't have that yet. We don't have those folks yet in the climate fight. And as you know, I started a a nonprofit called Eco Athletes a little more than a year ago. And full disclosure, Catherine is a supporter and is one of our luminaries. And we are excited to have her in both of those roles. So I wanted to just go over some of the obstacles that I get when I talk to athletes who are involved in the environment, mind you. Maybe it's plastic ocean waste. Maybe they're concerned about e-waste recycling or hurricane relief. But when it comes to climate, in large part, they they kind of say, oh, no. So I'll give you the objection or the obstacle, and then would love to hear your take on it. So the first objection that I get is that it's too sciencey. They don't know the science. They don't feel comfortable talking about something that has to do with science. How would you respond if you heard that from an athlete? That's something that I hear very frequently from many people, not just athletes. I work with an organization called Science Moms, and we've discovered the number one reason why a lot of moms don't talk about it is because they feel like, well, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) How am I supposed to talk about this issue? So we all feel like that. That's what I'd say, first of all, is, you know, that is very normal. But here's the thing. To understand what's happening to our planet, we do not need a PhD. 
And I can explain it to you in just literally 30 seconds. Here we go. By digging up and burning coal and gas and oil, which we've been doing since the dawn of the industrial era, we are releasing all kinds of heat trapping gases into the atmosphere. These gases are building up, wrapping an extra blanket around our planet that it never needed. And just like you would if someone snuck into your room at night and put an extra blanket on you, you'd wake up sweating in the same way our planet is running a fever because of this extra blanket. That's the science and that's all we need to know. Not only that, but it turns out that more science is not what convinces people to be more worried about it at all. What convinces? Yes. What convinces people is knowing that it matters to them. And so athletes are perfectly positioned to talk about, oh my gosh, if you think all the way back to that killer heat wave that the Pacific Northwest was having in in late June of this year, they had to halt the Olympic trials in Portland because it was so hot. My friend and colleague, Jenny Vanos, who's a biometeorologist as well as an athlete, she, for example, was looking at the Tokyo Marathon route to see if they could route it through areas that were more shaded so the athletes wouldn't overheat. We know that tennis matches have already had to be rescheduled because of extreme heat. We know that it's affecting all kinds of outdoor sports. We know that here in Texas, the Texas Rangers actually rebuilt a brand new stadium only 25 years after the last one so they could put a roof on it to air condition it so it wouldn't be too hot for the players and the fans. And I talk about that actually in my book. So talking about why it matters is something that athletes can do with so many vivid real world and even personal examples. And then talking about what we can help to do to fix it is so important because sports is a huge source of influence in our society. And a lot of younger people look up to athletes and they wear what they wear, they say what they say, they do what they do. So using our ability, using our influence, using all of the gifts that we've been given in our life to share with others how they can be part of the solution too, how they can have conversations with people. And you can even give them stories about, hey, did you know that this and this happened with this and this, you know, athletic event or something like that? And then talking about, hey, there's so many things that kids are doing in schools that big companies like Patagonia and Microsoft are doing at the corporate level. There's actions that states are taking, you know, in terms of renewable energy. There's all kinds of things that are happening and using our voice to tell our elected officials and our leaders that we want change is one of the most effective ways that individuals in a democratic society can affect change at the scale that's really needed so we have solutions for everybody, not just the people who are already concerned today. I mean, that's amen to that. What I say is when I get that, it's too sciencey, go through some of the points you made, but then I'll ask an athlete. So have, how many athletes, how many among you have been to children's cancer ward to visit? And almost every hand goes up. And then I'll say, how many of you are oncologists? No hands go up. And I said, you don't need to know the science. You just know that you care about kids with cancer and you want to help them feel better and hopefully that will help them get better in some small way. That's it. You are so right, Lou. That is a fantastic analogy. Thank you. And so now the next question is, and you talked about elected leaders, I always get this one. It's too political. I don't want to get involved in politics. How? Any thoughts on that? Well, it is politicized. As I referred to earlier, climate change is the most politically divisive issue in the entire United States. Why is that? 
It's not because a thermometer gives you a different answer depending on how you vote. It's not that if you're Republican, you're somehow immune to the devastating impacts of climate change and the economy and our health and our homes. No, of course not. When a wildfire burns down a neighborhood, it doesn't stop to ask how you voted before it takes your home. When a massive hurricane floods your neighborhood, it doesn't stop to differentiate between whether people believe that climate change made it bigger or stronger or not. It just does it. So why is it so politicized? It became politicized. This started, this started a few decades ago when the impacts of climate change and scientists' warnings, we'd been banging the drum on this for over a century already, but when scientists' warnings and the actual impacts started to become imminent, that's where some of the biggest and richest companies in the world who made their, their very, very large fortunes off digging up processing and selling or making things that burn fossil fuels, that's when some of the richest companies in the world decided it is a lot easier to artificially sow doubt in people's minds. Oh, those scientists don't know what they're doing. They're always changing their minds and maybe they're actually in it for the money. Who knows? And to persuade politicians to go along with them to say, hey, look at your district. We have so much oil and gas here. There's no way that we could possibly ever have a problem where we need to move off of that. That just does not make sense. So there was a deliberate politicization of this issue to the point where now the biggest predictor of whether people think it's real in the US is where they fall in the political spectrum. But that should not and cannot hold us back because it's like as if imagine cancer had been politicized. Imagine, well, guess what? COVID has been politicized. It absolutely has. Yes. It has been politicized to where whether or not people get the vaccine and even whether or not they admitted they had COVID when they were dying in the hospital from COVID was based on their political affiliation. And did that save them from COVID? No. Did not getting the vaccine because they didn't believe in it protect them? No. It affects us equally. So imagine that you're a physician or imagine you're just a concerned human being. And imagine that you see people who care about their health, who care about their kids, who care about their family. Imagine that you see them saying, well, this isn't real. Well, and and imagine you say, well, I'm going to stay away from that because it's too political. Now, you don't want to tell them, you know, I can't believe that you believe this at all. But when we find out what they're worried about and we connect the dots between climate change and what they already care about, and when we show them that who they already are is in fact already the perfect person to care. They don't have to become something other than who they are. They are already the best person to care about climate change because of who they are. And in fact, caring about and advocating for action on climate change is an even more genuine and authentic expression of their values and who they are. That's when we can move past the political polarization. And I think athletes are in a good position to be able to do that because they don't come from the world of politics. Now they can be put into a political box by others, but that's on the others, right? The athletes come to it just because this is important to me, period. Exactly. And one thing we do at Eco Athletes is we try and lower the fear quotient or the fear curve by saying, you know what? The politics of this are actually, the wind is at our back, especially as you get younger along the demographic scale, acceptance of climate change, that's not even a question as you get into Gen Z. or no. you know, It's what are you going to do about it? So you would be, you the athlete would be on the right side of history 
and would be gaining younger fans and you sports organizations who really care about how are we going to get Gen Z and whatever they call after Gen Z to care about sports the way, you know, old fogies like me did when we were growing up, you know, not that I'm not conceited enough to say, oh, yes, they're active on climate. That's going to make them a basketball fan. No, but it's showing that this team, this player, this league has their values right and is in in league, pun intended, with the mm-hmm. fans' values. You are 100% right on that, Lou. Younger people, regardless of their background or political affiliation, are very concerned about climate change. And we have to be willing for people to label us. And so, in fact, in my book, actually, one of my first stories is about the first time I ever taught a class in Texas. I taught a class on the geologic carbon cycle of all topics. And so only like one minute at the end was related to how humans were disrupting it by digging up and burning all of this coal, gas, and oil. And the very first, in fact, sadly, the only question I got from a room full of students was, are you a Democrat? And I was so dumbfounded that I couldn't think of what else to say except, no, I'm a Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) And, and and, And how did they react to that? I'm not sure they knew what to do with that answer either, but I have definitely been called all kinds of things, terrible names, as well as, you know, a socialist, a communist, a Democrat, a liberal, whatever, whatever. But I'm just standing here for truth. And so I've decided, I've made a conscious decision that whatever people are going to label me, whatever they're going to call me, whatever they're going to say about me, that's going to have to be okay. Because if I spend all my time defending myself against things people are saying that aren't true, I'm not going to have time to spend on what really matters, which is telling people, hey, This thing is real, it's us, and it's serious. It's affecting every single one of us here and now. And let me help you connect the dots between what you already care about and how it's being affected by climate change today. But oh my gosh, did you know there are amazing solutions? Let's talk about what people are doing in your area, your state, even your city. Let's talk about groups like Citizens Climate Lobby that you could get involved in to meet like-minded people who live near you who are advocating for smart, sensible climate solutions that help us all. Let's look at what we can do because the antidote to climate anxiety, as my friend Renee Lertzman says, who's a psychologist, she says the antidote to anxiety over climate change is action. And action, which may feel scary when you think about it, once you actually start acting, it ain't that scary. And no. you'll find, and I say this to the athletes too, and this is why you know, we at Eco Athletes, and there are other athletes groups as well who are involved in you know, environmental and climate work, you're not alone. And we have your back. And remember, LeBron James was told to shut up and dribble. And what did he do? He made a three-part documentary called Shut Up and Dribble, which talked about (laughs) athlete activism, African-American athlete activism. And I actually now think of Catherine Hayhoe as kind of the LeBron James of climate communicators. And, you know, if someone tells her to shut up and dribble, we know that she's not going to do that. She can't worry about that. I have definitely been told to shut up and research. (laughs) Definitely. But you've never been called the LeBron James of climate communicators, I bet, until now. No, I never have. And that is is more more honor than I deserve in my opinion. But thank you, Uh, Luke. All right. One more objection that I get. This is one that I've been getting a lot lately. And it's like this. I fly a lot for my sport. My carbon footprint is through the roof and I am going to get killed on social media if I speak out. So that's shut up and dribble or shut up and don't fly, or I'm not sure what it is, but that's what they're getting. 
Oh, I absolutely get that too. And that's a category of denial called impossible expectations. It's like you're buried within a society where our entire lives are woven around fossil fuel use, yet somehow you're not allowed to talk about it unless you go up to the Yukon and you're living off the grid, growing your own vegetables in a cabin so far from anywhere that nobody can ever hear from you again. So people love to set those impossible standards for us. And I think what's important is to just come right out front and say, hey, look, I've looked at my carbon footprint and here's what it looks like. And I acknowledge that all of us, including me, we're all part of the problem. But here, and this is what I do because I travel a lot too. I said, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing, and I know it's harder to do as an athlete, but I'm doing as much as I can virtually. When I do travel, I bundle together as many things as I can to do in one spot to be efficient with my travel. And what I do is I offset my emissions by donating to an organization, and I actually work for one of these amazing organizations, the Nature Conservancy. They're actually helping large corporations and entire, they could help entire teams offset their emissions by restoring and preserving thing, critical ecosystems like mangrove forests or grasslands that take carbon out of the atmosphere. And I also talk to people about biofuels for airplanes and the fact that United Airlines has been running flights off biofuels out of the LA airport for five years now. Nobody knows that. I talk about how they're doing amazing research to actually start being able to power our transportation with clean energy solutions that are, do not produce extra carbon. But getting out there and talking about this is so important. So say, you know what? Of course, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm doing what I can. I'm encouraging you to do what you can. And the good news is there are solutions. And those solutions include transitioning to clean energy sources, very important, being much more efficient with our energy. We're so wasteful. We waste over 60% of the energy that we use in this country and over 40% of our food. And investing in nature-based solutions, allowing soil and ecosystems to take up our carbon, and oceans too, I should add, to take up our carbon, investing in nature, investing in biodiversity, so it can do what it wants to do. It can do the job of cleaning up our air and our water. All of these are important solutions. And recognizing, of course, we're not setting an impossible standard. We can't change individuals. We have to change the world. But changing the world begins with an individual. And so it's the virtuous cycle of life, actually. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. One more quick question. And that is, the climate movement over time has been largely, mostly white. And athletes, especially African-American and people of color, we are trying at Eco-Athletes to you know, make the connection for them between racial injustice social or economic injustice and environmental or, and climate injustice and to flip that to justice. Any thoughts on that topic and how athletes can get involved? The reason I'm a climate scientist is because climate change is such a profoundly unjust issue. I was actually planning to be an astrophysicist and I was almost finished my undergraduate degree and I was even heading to graduate school when I sort of serendipitously took a class on climate change and I learned, much to my surprise, that climate change is not only an environmental issue, which of course it is. Climate change is a poverty issue. Climate change is a hunger issue. Climate change exacerbates the problems people already have, lack of access to clean water, basic health care, even a safe place to live. When neighborhoods flood in Houston as hurricanes get bigger and stronger, which neighborhoods flood fastest and most? The black and brown neighborhoods, the ones that where people are already marginalized and already disadvantaged. 
When we burn fossil fuels, producing massive amounts of air pollution, as well as heat trapping gases, who is disproportionately exposed to the air pollution? People who live in lower income neighborhoods, people who can't fight the factory that they wanted to put there or the oil processing plant they wanted to put there. Those are the people who are already suffering the most, the people who have done the least to contribute to the problem, they are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the impacts. And that is true in the inner cities of America today. And it is true on the other side of the world in Southeast Asia and Africa as well. Climate change is a justice issue. If we care about justice, by definition, we care about climate change. Why do I wanna act on climate? I'm a climate scientist. The only reason I wanna act on climate change is not because of climate change itself. It's because climate change is, as the US military calls it, a threat multiplier. It takes every single issue we already care about. Again, poverty, hunger, injustice, inequality, lack of access to resources, lack of access to basic healthcare, lack of access to basic education, to a place where you can safely sleep at night. All of these things that our world suffers from today, even right here in the US, climate change is exacerbating all of those, making them impossible to fix if we don't fix climate change first. And the good news is a lot of climate solutions also have immediate benefits like providing clean energy for people in some of the poorest parts of the world where they don't have coal or gas or oil, but they have a lot of sun and a lot of wind. 90% of new energy installed around the world last year in 2020 during COVID was clean energy. And much of it was in some of the world's poorest places where people don't have access to electricity. So climate solutions benefit us all, but they most benefit those who are most suffering the impacts. And so that's why, again, climate change is a justice issue. Climate change matters to every single one of us. Climate change is the most urgent issue facing us, facing all humans today. And to care about it, again, we only have to be one thing. We're all that one thing. And that is simply a human. And that's why I believe athletes are a crucial group of people to spark what we call hashtag climate comeback. Because who else? You know, we need a comeback on climate. Athletes do comebacks every day. Every sports movie you've ever seen is about a great comeback. So yes. let's use the inspirational power of athletes to spur a climate comeback. Catherine, I could talk to you for another 45 minutes, hour, whatever. Thank you so much for your time. The book is Saving Us, A Climate Scientist Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World by Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, where can you buy this book? You can buy it anywhere books are sold. You can get it at your local bookshop. You can get it online at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. You can get it anywhere. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. And read this book and listen to her TED Talk, people. It is both will be so well worth your time. Catherine, thanks again. Thank you so much, Lou. Saving Us is a great read, especially if you're looking to become a more powerful climate communicator. You can follow Catherine on Twitter at K Hayho. That's the letter K H. A-Y-H-O-E. And thank you again for listening to Green Sports Pod and for reading Green Sports Blog. Follow us on Twitter at Green Sports Blog and on Instagram at Green Sports Blogger. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. 
Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.